Master, Prime Warden, Wardens, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, a very warm welcome to you all at this fabulous Draper's Hall for the launch of the Raleigh 400 Historical Research. And we're very grateful to the Master Draper, Professor Philip Ogden, and the Draper's Company for their very special support and enthusiasm for this project. My name is Peter Hewitt, and I'm the originator of Raleigh 400 and a descendant of Sir Walter Raleigh, who was beheaded on the order of James I on the 29th of October, 1618, 400 years ago. R400 was created to commemorate the life of a quite extraordinary man, uh, one of the great polymaths of his time and undoubtedly an entrepreneur, founding the Roanoke Colony in Virginia amongst his many achievements. Having been what is now trendily called a serial entrepreneur for the last 40 years, I've realized there are many of Rawley's characteristics that are easily translatable into today's world. And so the more I've learned about Rawley, the more I've realized he was undoubtedly an entrepreneur of his age. And so we are focusing on what he has achieved and how it is relevant in today's age. So it's not entirely by coincidence that I'm the newly installed master of one of the newest aspiring livery companies where I was a founding freeman. And as of a couple of weeks ago, the fifth master. The Guild of Entrepreneurs does what it says on the tin. You have to put your own money into your own business, worked in it, and employed people, and had the inevitable sleepless nights. Our brief on the historical research was to explore the connection, if any, between Raleigh, the livery companies, and the City of London, with particular focus on the plantation of Virginia. The younger members of the audience have been here for an hour or so, exploring various aspects of Raleigh and entrepreneurship with academics and with entrepreneurs from the Guild. So the title is Raleigh 400, Entrepreneurship in Transatlantic Trade, with the subtext of the past, the present, and the future, a theme that must resonate in the UK's post-Brexit environment. And so acknowledging Rawley's significant contribution to both entrepreneurship and trade. We are today, of course, looking at the past, with the plan being to hold a two-day high-level conference with senior businessmen and politicians from both sides of the Atlantic later next year. And it is with this firmly in mind that I'm delighted to be launching tonight's events, which I hope will both entertain and inform you. The order for this evening is that Professor Jerry Broughton will speak for about 30 minutes on the new research, followed by a panel discussion and questions. It is now my great pleasure to hand over to Jerry Broughton, who has led on the new research. Thank you, Peter, um, and thank you to the Drapers for bringing this event together. Um, a quite unique, wonderful event, really, I think, between uh, historical research and business and entrepreneurs. Um, as Peter said, um, I'm Professor Jerry Broughton. I'm from Queen Mary University of London. There is a long and distinguished connection between the Drapers, where we are tonight, and Queen Mary. So it's a pleasure to be here. And as I say, it's wonderful uh, to introduce this research. So we're feeding back on you. I'm, I'm responsible for feeding back from a team of people who've been putting research together, thinking about Raleigh at this point of the 400th anniversary um, of his death, but thinking of him in terms of entrepreneurship. 
Um, so what I'm going to do is just talk a little bit about that, talk a bit about the history, and then we're going to go into, as Peter said, a roundtable discussion to just assess some of those uh, contexts for thinking about business and entrepreneurship. So let's start by thinking about uh, Rawley. What do we know about Rawley? He's interesting because I think he's still a bit of an enigma, and he's a bit of a paradox. He's known as one of Elizabeth I's uh, most important courtiers, but actually, in my field, in the world of uh, cultural history, we don't actually still know that much about what he got up to, in contrast to some of Elizabeth's um, other courtiers. Now, what is he known for? Well, here are some pictures to start off with, things he's usually associated with. And many of you will know this. He's known uh, for laying down his cloak on a puddle uh, for Elizabeth I here. Um, he's known uh, for his execution, very noble moment of his execution, where he said, come man, dispatch, you know, chop my head off. Um, and also, wonderfully, um, also known for his introduction of tobacco into England. And here is a picture which is believed that his, uh, his servant came into the room while he was smoking and was so appalled he thought Raleigh was on fire. So he doused water, he covered him in water, and, there you see the, and he threw the water over him. So these are the sort of stories that we know about Raleigh. Um, also known, of course, for bringing uh, potatoes to Ireland. All of these stories are wrong. They are all myths. But this is an interesting place to start, the fact that Rawley is one of the great myth-makers of his time. He's very astute. He's an entrepreneur who's very astute at getting a message out about himself. And indeed, the other thing about these images, as you'll probably be able to tell, is that they're all later predominantly Victorian images which romanticize a certain version of England's imperial past. So think about that, the way in which we're telling stories about Raleigh, but to what extent are we bringing our own interests and our own preconceptions to bear on somebody from 400 years ago? As historians, we always want to ask those questions, okay, about how much we are importing our own beliefs and our own prejudices. So I want to keep thinking about this way in which he's a paradox. He's a strange figure. He's often remembered for his imperial adventures, yet I think many historians would now say he's a very ineffective colonist. He's not very successful. In terms of his involvement in the Americas, Raleigh's name, as Peter was mentioning, is forever associated with the state of Virginia in the US, a place that he names. He names it after Queen Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen. Many of you will probably know, Raleigh never went to America. He never set foot on the North American continent. He's also associated with British Guyana, another colony. He wrote a book called Discovery of Guyana, which I'm going to be talking about um, later. But again, he only set foot for a few months in South America, in the region that we would now talk about in terms of Guyana, but he never actually went to modern-day Guyana. He went up the Orinoco River into what we now call Venezuela. So we have a big gap between the reality of Raleigh and the myth. And there's also an interesting question that then comes up about entrepreneurship, which we're going to be talking about for the rest of the talk. Even his name, Peter's kind of very, Peter, it's very interesting about this, about the pronunciation. Even his name is something that we're not quite sure about. Raleigh, Raleigh. He himself pronounced it in different ways and spelt his name in different ways. He was also responsible for putting out his image relentlessly. These are just two very famous images of him on the left from 1585. 
on the right, 1588, um, famous image. Rawley is absolute zenith when he'd just been knighted uh, by Elizabeth I. But again, he's somebody who is in control of his image. He's trying to create a certain romanticized image of himself um, as a courtier. But he's also got a reputation as a scholar, as a poet, as a scientist, and as a man of the sea. There are all these various levels that we're dealing with here with Rawley. Now we want to add another one, and in effect what the research has been doing is to look at a neglected aspect of Rawley's career, and that is entrepreneurship. To think about him in relation to the overseas commercial expansion um, and colonization going on in the late 16th century, and the fact that this was closely connected indeed to the livery companies. So, how do we start to understand all these different facets of this paradoxical figure? Well, let's start with his biography. And one of the first things that we uh, were looking at in the historical research was this question of his status as a commoner, as a member of the gentry. He was indeed not a commoner. He was a member of minor gentry. He was born between 1552 and 1554 uh, into minor Devon gentry. And it's very interesting the fact that he comes from Devon because we're going to see those connections between him as a man of military matters and also a man of the sea. And that's very much part of his context um, in Devon when he comes to Elizabeth's court. So what we want to see, and we start talking about this question of entrepreneurship and trade and commerce, are these interesting connections which the research thrown up, which we don't really usually get with Raleigh. We don't think about the fact that he's a man of his moment who is determined by certain factors, by his role in the gentry, his role in the military, and his connection to the sea. Not just that he's floating around the court with Elizabeth. Indeed, no, there are other very specific factors which feed in to his involvement in the adventures that we're going to be looking at. Now, the first place that we might start is Ireland. Raleigh was very involved in Ireland. He began his career in the military. He distinguished himself in campaigns in Ireland in the 1570s, suppressing Catholic Irish rebellions. Um, and this is one of the earliest Elizabethan maps of Ireland. You'll see, basically, we're looking at uh, Ireland, as it were, on its side. Um, you're looking at uh, the south coast down here in Cork um, and Ulster, that you can just see up there, Northern Ireland up here. So this was the first English attempt to map Ireland, and it was very much connected to the colonization and the plantation of Ireland. So this is not an innocent map. And indeed, Rawley's involvement in the region was also uh, not innocent. He participated in the late, in 1580, in the massacre of 600 Spanish and Irish men and women at Smerwick in Southwest Ireland. So we're looking at uh, the area over here. And indeed, because of that, uh, he was awarded 40,000 acres of land in Munster, again in this region down in Southern Ireland, including the towns of Eugal near Cork, which became his principal home while he was in Ireland, and Lismore. Interesting early moment of our research and thinking about entrepreneurship because there's a sense in which Raleigh is not terribly interested in the nitty-gritty financial and commercial activities of the plantation of these parts of Ireland. He was supposed to import English settlers to work the land and to develop local industries. He did none of this. 
What I do think, and we sense that he's interested in, is that being somewhere like this on the south coast enables him to get to the Americas. And we're coming to that um, in a minute. But indeed, what happens with Raleigh is that he has very little time for the Irish plantations, and eventually he sells his share in Munster in 1602. But there is a longer history about the English colonization um, of Ireland with the Ards colony in the northeast uh, in 1571, Munster in 1583, and the Ulster plantation in 1606. What's interesting about these early plantations in Ireland and Rawley's kind of involvement in them are that they established the benchmark for the American plantations in Roanoke in 1585, and ultimately the Jamestown colony in Virginia in 1607. The English learn how to settle and colonize the Americas by what they do in Ireland in the mid to late 16th century. Very interesting with Ireland because by the early, 15th, uh, by the early 17th century, the livery companies are very involved in the Ulster plantations. 55 of those companies, in fact, are investing in those plantations. But that's a later 17th century moment. But in the 1570s, many of the companies like Rawley are skeptical of the costs involved in these plantations. What they were aware of were wider geopolitical shifts in trade that was very important for Raleigh that we need to just consider before we move into his activities um, overseas. In the 1550s, the English wool trade in Antwerp collapsed. It leads to a downturn in the European economy, and the economy never really covers in the 16th century. A further problem, of course, is that Elizabeth I uh, is a Protestant. And in 1558, when she comes to the throne, Protestantism is established as the official state religion. Um, and England is basically isolated from the rest of Europe. English trade collapses because it's come out of Europe. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> Europe is also adversely affected because of the loss of or the diminution of English cloth and what England needs is new overseas markets beyond Europe that they need to sustain the industry. What this leads to is a series of regulated commercial companies and Raleigh is connected to these companies, the connection between new forms of business and commerce, new entrepreneurial activities to try and work beyond Europe and also leading to new forms of regulated economic exchange. So this is just a list of what's really interesting about the way in which the English are trying to get to markets in Asia and they try and go northeast through Russia and then they try and go northwest through Greenland, Newfoundland, and Canada. Um, and this is just a, a model for thinking about how those companies develop. The first company in 1551 is called the Mystery Company um, of Merchant Adventurers for the Discovery of Regions, Dominions, Islands, and Places Unknown in 1551. This is the first commercial joint stock company in England. It then morphs in 1555 into the Muscovy Company, um, again, where the uh, capital remained regularly in use instead of being repaid after every voyage, that kind of standard form uh, of commercial exchange. Gradually, what happens is that there's a realization that the Northeast Passage is just too far. It's too hard to try and get to Persia by way of Russia. So the Northwest Passage 
And this marvelous man, Martin Frobisher, one of Rawley's uh, antecedents, really, somebody who's doing the kind of things that Rawley ends up doing, decides um, that he's going to get involved. Uh, I love the trousers. This is fantastic trousers. He's exiled to Canada for crimes against fashion. Oh, wonderful. But you can see it's a sort of model rather like Rawley. Look at the way in which the globe and the gun is being uh, utilized there. The Northwest Passage then becomes the route into Americas. So from 1576, uh, the company of Cathay is trying to reach uh, China. It's going northwest. It's effectively going through Greenland. In 1576, the Spanish company uh, is also chartered and tasked with further forms of discovery. And here you can start to see the route that is developing, okay, going northwest, this way. And it's connected to this man. And this gets us back to Raleigh. This is a man called Sir Humphrey Gilbert. And Sir Humphrey Gilbert is the half-brother of Sir Walter Raleigh. Humphrey Gilbert pushes very, very hard for expansion into the Americas. And he's interested, uh, this is a wonderful map that he produces, again, showing America, Florida starts to appear. And what he's interested in, what Gilbert is trying to do, is begin to colonize this area, but also confront the Spanish. What's interesting is another entrepreneur who starts to work with the city, but he's also lobbying the Queen and the Privy Council to claim Newfoundland up here as an English colony and to take its fishing grounds from the Spanish. That's then used as a base to attack the Spanish in the New World of the Americas. And we're starting to get into Raleigh's territory, okay, into North America, Guyana down here, we're coming to. It's Gilbert who gives Raleigh those first ideas. Gilbert sets off in 1583 to Newfoundland. He reaches Newfoundland. He claims it for Elizabeth, um, and he drowns on the way back. The person who is then gifted with the attempt to colonize the Americas is his half-brother, Raleigh. Now, I think this is really interesting because Rawley is therefore the right person at the right time. He's not pushing for this entrepreneurial development. He's, as it were, gifted it because of his connection uh, to Gilbert. So it's a less romantic reading that I think the research has thrown up that situates Rawley at the confluence of all these different factors. You've got the rise of the commercial regulated companies with livery company support. You've got anti-Spanish sentiment. You've got the city again pushing because it wants uh, new markets. And you've also got the experience of the colonization of Ireland. So it's been based um, on those kind of models. So Raleigh is now free under Elizabeth's support to go and colonize parts of North America. Now, what does he do? Well, the first thing he does Fascinatingly, I think, in terms of our brief around entrepreneurship, he gets a team of skilled people together. He gets a man called Richard Hacklut, who's a scholar, to build a new case for developing the settlement of the discovery of America. And this is about the attempt by the English to settle and create plantations in the Americas because Hacklut gives Raleigh the story that says, if you want to invest in this region, there are great commodities here. 
You don't need to get to Asia. You can do it in the Americas. You can settle and plant the Americas. Forget getting to South Asia. And that's a model which Raleigh uh, takes up very strongly in the late 1580s. Um, what he first does is he sends out reconnaissance voyages, interesting again in terms of his speculation and his entrepreneurial approach to these kind of activities. He sends out um, reconnaissance voyages in 1584. They first identify Roanoke off the west coast, off the coast of North Carolina, as the place to develop English plantations. Raleigh then builds a sort of corporate enterprise to launch the colonial adventure. Not only has he used Richard Hacklew, he uses other scholars like Thomas Harriet. Um, Harriet learns the local Algonquian languages, the American natives. He learns the language so that they can go in there and they can settle the area, but also work uh, with the members of the indigenous communities. He also takes money from his relative, the merchant William Sanderson. Sanderson is a member of the Fishmongers Company and he helps to finance the American expedition. And I'm just giving you here the kind of material that if we're working on this history, um, you would have to look at. And it's about Sanderson managing Raleigh's affairs at the time of his prosperity. Um, he uh, was bound to Raleigh. He basically stood bond for, for Raleigh's investments for more than 100,000 pounds sterling. Now at this time, this is a vast amount of money. And as we said, uh, he sent also several adventures unto Virginia with Sir Walter at the first discovery thereof, also unto his own very great cost and charge of some thousand pounds sterling. So Raleigh was using his own money from Ireland, but he was also using Sanderson's money to bankroll the first voyages. Some of you will know uh, the outcomes of this. These are the maps by John White, who was sent um, on the first colony, uh, the first colonial adventure from April 1585. Um, this you can see, so this is the map of the area of Roanoke. There's the island of Roanoke. What I love is that there's uh, Raleigh's own crest. He's putting his crest, he's stamping his own mark on this region. He's saying this is a, an area that we now possess, that we now own. These maps that we look at, I'm, I'm interested in maps, um, I'm interested in the kind of uh, the way in which maps lay claim to territory. This, like the map I showed you of Ireland, is not an innocent map. It's showing the arrival of the English and the attempt at settlement and plantation in this region. There's no representation, as it were, of the indigenous communities. They come in the kind of uh, drawings that John White makes of the local uh, habitations, the local people. Sorry, but it seems to me that this is very much something that's being created. This is a brochure for investment in the area. This is not, as it were, an attempt to understand the local communities. It's an attempt to colonize and settle. Many of you will know that the settlement failed catastrophically. Um, it was relieved in 1586. Uh, the enterprise was seen in danger of collapse. It was Hakluyt, actually, who told Raleigh that he needed to keep the colony in uh, Roanoke going. Raleigh created a new corporation. He named himself the governor uh, of the city of Raleigh in Virginia. And he sent back 
another group of colonists, led by John White, who drew these, uh, who'd made these drawings. White went back in 1587. Um, the colony was completely obliterated. Um, it's one of the, the, the strange stories about this period of English imperial history. It's known as the Lost Colony. Um, they just disappeared. They don't know whether they were killed, whether they were assimilated into the local communities. We simply don't know. The scheme, it seems, probably failed for two reasons. First, by Raleigh's notorious impatience. There's a sense in which there's a short-sightedness to what Raleigh's about. He's looking for quick dividends which he's more interested in privateering, in plundering, than actually working on the plantations. Secondly, I think it's about geopolitics. Um, with the Armada of 1588, the whole move of political engagement with Spain comes back into Europe, and the New World uh, loses, to some extent, its focus. But there's one further exploration and one further expedition that Raleigh gets involved with even though Virginia has to some extent collapsed. And that is El Dorado. It's the search for uh, Guyana. And it's a such a uh, fascinating moment with what happens in the early 1590s, that because Virginia has really collapsed, Raleigh himself is out of favor. He marries this woman, Elizabeth Throckmorton, um, he's exiled from court, and he's broke. He needs another initiative. And what he does is he searches for El Dorado. He's fascinated by the stories that are coming out of the Spanish New World, rumors of a city of gold deep in the South American interior. But this move, this final move into the Americas, into Ghana, I think is really interesting in terms of entrepreneurial visions because it's a very different kind of engagement from that that drove the Virginia plantation. Elizabeth gave him the rights to go into the region. I'll just leave that up so you can look at that. She's become openly antagonistic to the Spanish. He's funded again by William Sanderson to the tune of 60,000 um, pounds, a huge amount of money. He leaves England in 1595. Um, he arrives uh, in Trinidad. He takes Trinidad from the Spanish. Here you see him leading away uh, the Spanish here. Here's Raleigh. He goes um, into what we now call Venezuela um, in search of this fabled city of gold. He meets the local uh, communities. This is uh, Topiawari, who's the uh, member of the Pemon tribe from this area of Venezuela in the Orinoco Basin. Um, but it all goes terribly wrong. It goes terribly wrong for Raleigh. It doesn't really work. He comes back. There's no gold. Um, he's imprisoned by James I. He writes a book, The Discovery of the Large, Rich, and Beautiful Empire of Guyana, which is published in 1596, an attempt to sell. Again, this is an entrepreneurial vision, an attempt to sell the story of what's happened in Guyana. But again, rather like Virginia, it's not a success story. However, modern-day Guyana still is absolutely inextricably connected to the story of Raleigh. 
because Rawley gets the story out. He tells the story of, yes, there is gold there. If only we can go back, there's one last chance, possibly, to get the gold, but it never works out. But this book, I think, is just a brilliant, brilliant example of how Rawley manipulates a certain version of his entrepreneurial activities. He also produces um, this wonderful map. Uh, this is of the, you can see, this is the uh, Orinoco River. This is, so this would be Venezuela. Down here would be modern-day Guyana. And this is this mythical lake, the mythical lake of Manoa, of El Dorado, um, where people cover their bodies in gold, and Raleigh believes that he'll bring back a huge amount of gold. Now, again, there's an issue here, because I think in terms of entrepreneurship, this is about extraction. It's an extractive economic model. It's not, again, the idea of a business model. Raleigh goes there because he feels it's about getting rich quick. Um, it's a complete uh, disaster. Um, he goes back in 1617, a terrible, terrible return where he's too sick to actually get up the Orinoco Basin. He goes with his son, who's shown here. Um, his son is involved in an attack on the Spanish colony in the region of Venezuela. Raleigh comes back with his tail between his legs and he's executed. The Virginia, I just want to end really by talking a little bit about the Virginia investments and the livery companies. What's interesting is that around this time where the Virginia companies are starting to be developed right from 1606, Raleigh's in the tower because everything's gone so wrong with his involvement in James I and Guyana. So he is actually, uh, he's taken away from any involvement in Virginia. What then happens ironically because of that is that the Virginia Council, the Lord Mayor and the Aldermen, invest in the Virginia companies at 12 pounds, 10 shillings a share. And these are the sort of investments that we start to see uh, from the livery companies. Somewhat reluctantly in some ways, but it's interesting to start to look at the way in which a collective form of entrepreneurship, ironically because of Rawley's failings, lead to the development of that kind of model. And this, um, I actually went to uh, Ghana. I, I made a program about Rawley for Radio 4 um, and went there a couple of months ago. Um, and it was interesting to, again, see the, the legacy of what happened with people like Rawley and, and, indeed, the British colony there. This is um, an image of informal gold mining, and this is uh, the consequences of using mercury uh, to extract gold uh, from the landscape. So I guess it's a point to end by thinking about that long historical legacy of a place which, of course, still speaks English, uh, is very connected to that tradition of El Dorado and Walter Rawley. But also, I think, to think of the, uh, the ethical dimensions of entrepreneurship um, and how we see Rawley within that kind of legacy.